Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. He's published a book in 2021, July of 2021. Title of the book is Bombshell. The night Bobby Kennedy killed Marilyn Monroe. His name is Mike Rothmiller, and he has enjoyed a distinguished career in law enforcement, working across U.S. federal and state agencies with American and international intelligence services. He served for 10 years with the Los Angeles Police Department, or the LAPD, including five years as a deep undercover detective with the Organized Crime Intelligence Division, or the OCID, which is a very important acronym to remember when discussing this book. He's also a regular commentator on law enforcement and worldwide intelligence matters across America and throughout the world. He is a New York Times bestselling author of 23 nonfiction books, um, some of his books, the titles, I'm not going to list them all, but one is an important one uh, that some of the stuff that he studied in this book is in is in Bombshell, which is L.A. Secret Police Inside the LAPD Elite Spy Network, published 2014. Also, Secret Lies and Deception, Top Secret Presidential Telephone Transcripts, Top Secret Presidential Letters, Top Secret Documents, and Other Amazing Pieces of History, 2016, uh, with a Part two, which came out in 2018. Also, two true crime chronicles, volume one and two, which covers serial killers, outlaws, and justice, uh, real crime stories from the 1800s that was published this year. Also, another serial killer, Dr. H.H. Holmes Speaks. He tells his story from a prison cell 2021. And also, Cayman Snakes and Lightning, Defying Death in the Amazon 2021. And his co author was Douglas Thompson, who I interviewed back in December 2020 about his excellent book about Stephen Ward. It was called Stephen Ward's Scapegoat, which covers the Profumo affair. But this uh, book has so much background. You can tell Roth, Mr. Uh, Detective Roth Miller knows a lot about what happened in L.A. at that time. And it, there's a lot of really great background information in this book, Bombshell. So, Mike Roth Miller, are you there? I'm here. Awesome. Well, thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people who may not have heard of your background or some of your other books, can you talk about your long uh, career in law enforcement and what led you to write Bombshell? Sure. Um, I started with the LAPD and as all cops do in patrol, I became a training officer. I worked vice for 18 months undercover. Um, then I went on some special assignments some, to some of the specialized divisions within LAPD and I became a field supervisor. <clears throat> And I was working at Venice Beach supervising that division. And uh, the last five years that I spent for LAPD was within the Organized Crime Intelligence Division. And I was the youngest detective ever to be assigned there. And what we did was gather intelligence. That was it. We didn't make arrests. We had roughly 60 detectives. And in the five years that I was there, nobody was arrested. There was not one arrest made out of the entire division. Uh, the reason being, the chiefs of police who set up LAP intelligence, they were afraid that if we were subpoenaed to go to court, then a lot of the intelligence would come out. And they were afraid of that because much of the intelligence we gathered uh, was through means that were not legal. Uh, there were people doing illegal wiretaps, black bag jobs, which the FBI used to do, and they probably still are, where they'd break into a an office or to a home, look around, see what they can find out, and uh, through surveillances and so forth. So that's what we did. Uh, we gathered intelligence on anybody that wielded power, whether that's a political person, uh, from the president down to a local city council member, 
to entertainers, sports celebrities, uh, owners of major league teams. It was all done. And, and even on the college level and the university level, we would gather intelligence on the president of the university, the head coaches, primarily within the sports realm, uh, because there was a lot of betting going on then with the mob, uh, with coaches from various universities. They were betting sometimes on and other times against their own teams. So we gathered that intelligence, and that was all done for the benefit of the chief of police. Right. And what years was that, uh, roughly? Well, actually, it started in 1932, LAPD intelligence gathering. And when I was there, it was from, uh, oh, 77, 76, 77 to uh, 83. And there were vast, I mean, right, it wasn't just like one file cabinet of intelligence. You had files on files cross-referencing, very ornate, that were all secret. And then you had your own internal kind of uh, coding so people would, wouldn't know unless they were in there about what was cross-referenced, right? That's true. And people have to remember, this was before computers. We didn't have a computer. We didn't have cell phones or anything. And so the filing system was set up actually in the 1930s, and it was three by five, like library cards from the old days. You'd flip through them, and it was in alphabetic order. And on the cards, it had a date and a number, a sequence of numbers, and it gave a sentence about what was in that intelligence report. And so if you read that, you'd go to the files, which are all hard files, hard copies, and you dig them out and uh, go through them. Um, and unless you worked within that division, you didn't understand the filing system. So at any given time, the chief of police could have walked in, handed him a filing card, and he would not be able to find the confidential files because... In the upper right-hand corner, there's just an asterisk printed, and that meant that there was a super secret of confidential file in another room. And unless you knew the filing system, you would never find it. So I had access to everything uh, from the 1930s on. And something that's important to remember is that <clears throat> when a major death, a homicide, let's say, would occur within Los Angeles, L.A. County, <clears throat> LAPD intelligence homicide, pardon me, LAPD homicide detectives would handle the investigation. And now I'll, I'll just mention like Robert Kennedy assassination now. They would handle the investigation, go to court, do whatever has to be done. LAPD intelligence, OCID, would do a secret investigation using their own tactics, uh, which were, you know, some were legal, most weren't. They would gather the intelligence for the chief of police only. The guys who were doing the homicide investigation didn't realize intelligence was doing their own investigation. And in many cases, it came up with different findings. Um, Marilyn Monroe's a case that was done. And I saw the secret intelligence investigation on her death. Uh, RFK was another one. Uh, the Black Dahlia from 1947, that was another one. And interesting, just in that particular case, they knew who killed the Black Dahlia, Elizabeth Short. But that person was never arrested uh, because of connections with high-ranking LAPD officers. So it, you'll see within the intelligence um, unit that there were a lot of different findings that did not jive with, quote, the official investigation that was released to the public.
Right, and you have, and and the LAPD is what the either the largest or the second largest police department. It's a massive group. So this OCID gave the chief of police an immense amount of power. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely, and that's what the chief used it for. Uh, I know of several cases where uh, we gathered intelligence on people because the chief of police wanted to squeeze them, and he could convert an enemy to an ally with the mention or showing them of a secret photograph, a clandestine photograph that we took that was very embarrassing um, or regarding an affair. If it was a man or woman, they're married, the affair they were having, who they're having with photos of that. So the chief could do that. And give you a quick example. I uh, headed in a surveillance operation to into uh, John Vandy Camp, who was the attorney general of California. And what happened was we had another another intelligence operation going where a mob guy misdialed and called Vandy Camp's house. He had a beach house in Laguna Beach. And the call lasted oh, maybe 10 or 15 seconds before nobody answered before the guy hung up and realized he misdialed. And the next number we saw that he dialed was the correct one. So I mentioned that to our captain in OCID who immediately went to the chief of police, Daryl Gates, and told him that this mob guy called Vandy Camp's house. Instantly, there's a massive investigation underway. Uh, I was told to put together teams to go down and put Vandy Camp under surveillance at his beach house. Uh, I did that reluctantly. I went down there, found out all the doors. It was a very old beach house. All the doors and screens were covered with cobwebs, so nobody had been there for probably a year or two. And I came back, reported that, and then they authorized me to rent a yacht to anchor it off the beach to watch the house from there. And uh, that's something I didn't do. I just said, this is too crazy. <laughs> you know, I just said, no, there's nobody there. Nobody's been there in years. Uh, it was a missile number. Let's forget about it. And finally, the chief of police backed off. But he wanted to prove that Vandy Camp was gay so he could, in turn, squeeze Vandy Camp. Right. Wow. So, yeah. So all that stuff was going on. And the LAPD does have a history. You talk about this group, the Gangster Squad. They have an extrajudicial history uh, about dealing with certain topics. I mean, really tough, like brutal tactics, right? Or back oh, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, dating back from... Oh, 1932 when they started into probably the mid 50s. Uh, what would happen before there was airline transportation? They would the mob guys from the East Coast would come into LA on the train to the LA train deep Union Station, and the intelligence guys would meet them there when they got off the train, and they would take the guy to either a warehouse, a deserted motel, or up to Coldwater Canyon, Mulholland Drive and just beat the heck out of them, and then tell them, don't come back, because next time you won't be leaving here, meaning, you know, the threat that they'll be killed, and then they take him back to the bus station and throw him on the next train heading back to Chicago, Philly, Jersey, or wherever. Um, when airline traffic started coming in, a lot of passengers, they do the same thing. They meet the airplane, take the person off the plane, take him for a ride, um, do the same thing, then take them back to the airport, put them on the next plane leaving. But then it got to be a bit risky. So what they do is they just meet the airplane, 
go up to the person getting off, the mob guy or whoever, and say, hi, we're here, we're going to follow you, we're going to know everybody you're talking to. Uh, so you do what you got to do, but we're going to do what we have to do. And, and that's pretty much when I was there, how we handled it. In most cases, we just go not confront the person, but let them know that we are watching them. Right. And so, uh, that would in turn make them quite nervous, and many times they would leave. Right. So, I mean, definitely some uh, interesting elements. So that's kind of like the background of Marilyn Monroe, that era. And you've testified twice in court about the OCID and some of the intelligence stuff too, right? Oh, I've testified many times, and I've uh, testified <clears throat> before the L.A. County Grand Jury, a secret grand jury into the investigation of Robert Kennedy's assassination oh, and provided some information that uh, was contrary to what the official report said. Right. So that's really it. So you have an official report about the, quote, suicide of Marilyn Monroe. You have the official story about RFK, which Sirhan Sirhan's about to get out of jail, I guess, is my understanding. So it's still kind of relevant. Um and there's a lot of misinformation and disinformation about uh, Marilyn Monroe, her connections to some of these characters. Can you talk about like some of the information that you found out about her that came out of the OCID files? Well, there was just a massive amount of information on her. And when I got into the files, the first one I came across was, uh, well, the Kennedys. When I saw the mayor of Los Angeles had an intelligence file on him, I thought, wait a minute. And then I jumped to the Kennedys right away, and I saw there was a massive, massive file on JFK. Before he became a senator, it started, and on his brothers, uh, Robert and Edward. And then those were linked to Marilyn, and they're also linked to uh, Peter Lawford's file. And so once I started reading those, I saw the interconnections and how LAPD had... Uh, the Kennedys, when they'd come, sometimes Robert would come alone, sometimes John Kennedy would come alone to L.A. even before he was president, and they'd be put under surveillance, even though Chief Parker and Captain Hamilton of the OCID then were very close friends of uh, John Kennedy and Robert Kennedy. When they weren't chauffeuring them around personally, they were under surveillance, and uh, so... That's what's in the file. Everything that you can imagine that they did. People they met with, uh, their phone calls, transcripts of the phone calls made from Princess Lawford's house and so forth. And the wiretapping that was done at Peter Lawford's house and Marilyn's house and the bugs that were planted were put there by a guy named Fred Otash. And Fred Otash was a former L.A. cop, became the highest paid private investigator in the country at the time. And when I was in OCID, I, I started talking to him and turned him into an informant. And so he told me everything that he did at Marilyn's house prior to her death, the night of her death, and afterwards, and the same at Peter Lawford's house. And uh, so I knew what went on. I read the transcripts. But LAPD was not the only organization obtaining transcripts of the conversations from Fred. What Fred did... He was on the, the payroll of the CIA, the FBI, OCID, and also the Teamsters. It's just incredible. And yeah. for people who don't know, the background is Lawford is friends with, he's kind of the connection or go-between between the JFK brothers and Maryland who knew Maryland and then eventually married into the Kennedy family, I think in 55 or 54, yeah. 
So mm, you can see yeah. that. And you wrote in your book, like the cover story or the, the misinformation is that Marilyn never met RFK or JFK until 1961. And those files prove that it happened way before that, five years oh, yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The intelligence proves a lot. <laughs> that doesn't come out. And, uh, <clears throat> yeah, Peter was uh, very close to her, uh, more so than the Kennedys were in the beginning since he introduced them. But uh, Peter was married to uh, one of the Kennedy sisters at the time. And so that was his entry into the Kennedy clan at, at the time. But uh, it was all very interesting because the way it went down that night is that RFK and Peter went to Marilyn's house twice. Uh, once in the afternoon, then once in the evening when she died. And <clears throat> the official story was that <clears throat> Peter called a few times, uh, spoke to her. She wasn't feeling well. He invited for dinner and so forth. It just, that was a story concocted by LAPD intelligence and given that Peter was scripted for him. And what happened was they went over there twice. And how do I know that? I, because I read the OCID files on it, the surveillances. Um, I saw surveillance photos taken that day of Robert Kennedy and Peter Lawford in LA around Peter's house and so forth and going up to Maryland. So that was there. Fred Otash had the transcripts of uh, the conversations that went on from Peter's house calling Maryland and so forth. And uh, so when you combine all that, and then later on when I interrogated Peter Lawford, it all comes together. But the entire story for me didn't come together until about 93. And that was after my first book came out, LAPD Secret Police, is that a, a guy called me named Jack Clemens. I didn't know who Jack was. And I said, who are you? And he says, well, I'm former LAPD. And then he related the story that he was the first cop at Marilyn's house that night when she died. And I said, oh, okay, yeah, let's, let's chat. So over, geez, about a year or so, we got together for lunch several times, had many phone calls, and he laid out what happened the night he was there when he showed up and what happened afterwards and how he saw immediately uh, things were being staged at her house, people were telling the truth, and then what's, really critical is that afterwards days later he was at the police station again he is a watch commander two guys walk in wearing plain clothes and they have some photographs eight by ten black and whites and they said here we want you to initial these which was completely out of lapd protocol the only people who ever initial the photographs the person who photographed it uh, so they can say yeah i took that photo and he said, well, why would I do that? I didn't take these photos. They said, no, we want you to do initial them that they're accurate. So he said he looked at them, and there's one photo that's been out there in the public realm for quite some time. It shows Marilyn in bed with her hand holding a telephone receiver. And he said there are two photographs of that. One, she's holding a receiver, and another, she's not. So it was staged. So why would that be? You're staging evidence is what you're doing. And he would not go along with the program. He wouldn't do it. Then the person there ordered him to do it. He said, well, who are you? And the guy pulls out his ID. He's Captain Hamilton, head of intelligence. And he said, uh, 
wants you to initial these. He wouldn't do it. He refused. And, and Hamilton, that, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. Hamilton was friends with the Kennedy family going back, right? So it was even before 61 yes. or whatever. And I think you wrote in your book that LAPD was kind of in there, either in the pocket or allied with the Kennedy family going back to 1956, right? Yeah, way back. And what would happen, um, a little more background on that, is that Hamilton and Chief Parker at the time, but primarily Hamilton, became very close with Robert Kennedy and John Kennedy. Because what would happen, before he even ran for the Senate, JFK would come out, and Hamilton would help him out on different things. He would show from around, they'd set up the hotel rooms, and Hamilton even would help supply female entertainment for him. And um, <clears throat> then when both of them start coming out, sometimes they'd come out under assumed names because they didn't want to be tracked here to L.A. And uh, Hamilton would pick them up, take them to a hotel. Generally, it was the Biltmore Hotel because the chief of police had a comped hotel room there 24-7. So they would put one or both of them in that hotel room under assumed names. And frankly, the public didn't know who they were because they weren't in office yet. And uh, then Hamilton would also provide security and um, freedom from the media if they caught on to anything regarding some of the sex parties that were going on. And one was Frank Sinatra had a, at least one sex party that they attended when he had a house in San Fernando Valley on the hilltop. It was very desolate then. And uh, Hamilton provided security by being at the bottom of the hill for another OCID guy. And if somebody came snooping around, they would chase him off. Or if that didn't work, they'd just have him arrested. Because uh, this was back in the 50s and 60s when things like that were done all the time. And so, yeah, they went way, way back. Uh, right. And a lot, of, a lot of that information wasn't public. So you took time for people to get her diaries. Fragments was her book. Um, put things together, and people never thought Bobby Kennedy was involved because there was no way he could be in L.A. at that time, right? Was it the 4th that's of what 62? That's what they thought, and that's what some said, and that's what the the official spokespeople would say. Uh, but <clears throat> the chief of police knew, uh, head of intelligence knew, guys from OCID knew, and even uh, Mayor Yorty at the time knew, and as an example, how secretive OCID was. When my first book came out in about 93, I was on a talk show with Tom Redden, who was a former chief of police of LA, and Sam Yorty, the former mayor at that time. At the time of her death, Redden was an assistant chief of police. He was in Bill Parker's office, who was the chief, when Captain Hamilton brought in uh, all of the telephone toes from Maryland's house, all because it used to be kept on paper, they'd write it down. He went to the phone company, took all their records, gave them to the chief of police. And the reason being, there were calls going from Maryland's house to Peter's, from Peter's house to the White House, and back and forth. So Tom Redden was there, and he said, he told me, I saw those phone numbers, and the chief and I discussed them. Fine. So after this, uh, interview, he contacts me about a week later. He says, I want to talk to you about Marilyn Monroe. I said, sure. Go ahead. What, what's your question? He said, well, what really happened and 
what did OCID have? Now, this guy is the former chief of police. And I asked him, so you don't know? He says, no. He says, when I became chief, the first call I made was to a lieutenant at OCID. And I asked him, I said, do you have a file on Marilyn Monroe and the Kennedys? And the guy said, oh, absolutely. Sure, chief, we do. He says, fine, I want all those files in my office this afternoon. You got it, chief. Well, right, and so when the afternoon came around, the captain of OCID shows up with nothing. And he says, well, where are the files? And he says, well, Lieutenant Salso is mistaken. We don't have any files on Maryland or the Kennedys, which was a lie. But the chief of police, there's no way of proving otherwise because he didn't know the filing system. If he went there, he wouldn't find them. And uh, so I told him, I said, well, you know, when I was there, those files were there and I went through them all. And so, right. yeah. And he says, yeah, I knew Robert Kennedy was in town. We knew he was there that night. And he said, so did Yordi. And you, I think you quote Gates specifically saying Daryl Gates, kind of a notorious chief of police. Yes. I think under Rodney King too, uh, said we all knew he was there. And then there was also a cop who pulled him over with Lawford, right? The guy by the name of Franklin pulled right, him over. Beverly Hills, Beverly Hills PD guy did. Right. And so it, it wasn't a, a question. And, um, Sam Yorty called me after Redden did and wanted to know the same thing. And so I told him, he says, well, I knew she was, you know, the Kennedy, Robert Kennedy was there at her house. He says, I knew that for a fact, but he says, I didn't know what happened. And it was funny about uh, Yorty because we had a, <laughs> there was a huge intelligence file on him and he had his hands in a lot of things. And uh, I asked him after we spoke about this, well, do you want to know what was in your file? He goes, no, 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 that's okay. I don't want to know. <laughs> You don't want to know what information LAPD had on him. You know? Right. And yeah. I mean, at that time, they did. the LAPD knew what the Kennedys were up to, but they had a really good public image, right? That they were family men and uh, not up to the shenanigans they were up to. Is that correct? Right. Right. They, they did. And, you know, a lot of the media, especially the media from uh, D.C., they knew they're having affairs all over the place, you know, and flings. But it was just it was a different time where the media kept it quiet, they provided cover for them, as they did other presidents. And, uh, you know, it was just, it was Camelot, that was the image, and that's what they wanted to stay with. And uh, the things that people don't understand is that, uh, and I wrote about it in another book, is that you look at the assassinations that uh, JFK authorized. I mean, the documents are out there now. Uh, the one that he never pulled off was obviously Castro. They tried. And uh, I've got an entire list I was able to get from the CIA and a list of their assassins that they used at the time. It was like 25 people, their names, who were their assassins. And one thing is off the subject, but uh, the one CIA document I have has said that probably at the very moment when JFK was shot in Dallas, a CIA agent was in Paris giving a poison pen to an assassin to kill Castro with. And that's from their own documents. Uh, so, yeah, there's a lot going on. And, yeah, it's uh, super intriguing. There's all, so yeah, many things going on. Yeah. And she's kind of uh, taking notes, writing things in her diary, talking about John. She's got all these lovers and uh, kind of love affairs. But she, why do you, what was the motive for, 
uh, suiciding Marilyn Monroe? Well, I said uh, LAPD Intelligence Society had a copy of her missing diary, which I came across. I was going through the files. And I took notes out verbatim uh, that I understood what she was talking about. And so those notes are in the book. But uh, she knew too much. But even at the time, if she didn't know anything, if she came out and was able to prove just from circumstantial evidence that she was having an affair with John Kennedy and then Robert Kennedy, that would have ended the Kennedy administration. Uh, in the early 60s, he would have had to resign um, for that. But some of the things that he mentioned uh, that she wrote in her diary is bordering on the, really bordering along the lines of disclosing national security issues. because. She had notes in there about Castro, what he said about Khrushchev and so forth. And so that's just information. Yeah, the world knew, but the world didn't know it from uh, John Kennedy's mouth. And so it would have been a huge issue. It would destroy them politically and personally. And she was saying, like, there was a kind of infamous meeting she had up in Lake Tahoe with Sinatra was there. And the Kennedys are there saying... I'm going to go public. I'm going to tell. So that must have sent real emergency kind of shockwaves through the Kennedy family. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. She was went to the Cal Naval Lodge, which was owned by Sinatra and a hidden ownership by Sam Giancana, who was the head of the Chicago mob at the time. And uh, she was up there. They were trying to, for better term, get her in a compromising position to control her more so. And, when she came back, she was being rebuffed. Every time she would call, for instance, the White House, JFK wouldn't take her calls any longer. Um, then she was calling RFK. Then finally it became the point where he was breaking it off with her, and he wouldn't take any calls, and that just inflamed her from her diary and from the transcripts. And <clears throat> she spoke to a friend of hers, Jose Manuelas, who was a Mexican actor, and... Uh, she mentioned to him that she was going to go public, hold a news conference, and lay everything out uh, about her affairs with both Kennedys and what they told her and so forth. That would have ended their, their careers yeah. right yeah. there. And uh, so you look at it and say that in the time of 1962, 63, 60, the early 60s, the way world events were, who was expendable? The president, the AG, or Maryland? And so that's how you have to look at it. And obviously, she was expendable, but there are other ways that it could have been handled. She could have been put into a psychiatric hospital instantly, drugged up for six months or a year, then let out. And everybody say, poor Marilyn, she's crazy. You know, no matter what she says, you can't believe. Uh, but it appeared that some, like most people, when they do these things, there's a panic that happens. They start to panic. <clears throat> and they make a huge mistake. And that's what happened with Marilyn, because <clears throat> speaking, to, when I in, interviewed Peter Lawford, it started as just an interview, like you and I talking, but then he went down the same path as he did before with this LAPD script, and I called him and said, no, no, that's, that's all BS, I know, you know. Now, here's what you don't know, and I got into it about 
his house, he knew his house was wiretapped in the Broom's Bug because he hired Fred Otash well before this to do that. So when he held a meeting in, for instance, his den, he would excuse himself, walk into the next room, and listen to what people were talking about if he's negotiating something. <clears throat> so he knew all that was going on, but he didn't realize Fred Otash, being the type of person that he was, he was recording all the, his telephone calls and conversations as he was doing with Marilyn. So <clears throat> once Peter realized that, and I laid out some other things to him, factual information that he thought nobody knew, uh, it changed from an interview to an interrogation, which is very different. And so I started leaning on him, and then he just he broke down, uh, which I haven't seen that too many people over the years interrogating, but it happens. And we're sitting in a park bench, and he just uh, was cradling his face in his hands, um, and he just started to tremble, and he just said, what do you want to know? And I just said, you tell me the truth. What happened? And he got into it. And I knew he was telling the truth because uh, of a lot of information, background information I already had. And so he wasn't deceptive. He wasn't drunk. He was under the influence then. And he just laid it out. And I can see that the information that he was carrying all these years had really taken a toll on him and, and probably destroyed him in his career. But, and that was really true because after yeah. like 62, he just kind of went down. He actually... Yes was kind of on the ascension growing up. I think he was in one of the Lassie movies and he had a couple leads and very talented, you know, a real, relatively talented guy, but something took a turn for the worse and ate him up. Like, I think he became pretty much a day drunk too, if I remember correctly. Yeah, because when, when I, <clears throat> it was just uh, a lucky day. I, I took my wife and some friends to the Playboy Mansion because working intelligence we had access to a lot of stuff for a tour. And on that particular morning, he was there, and I just saw him in a room, and I was looking at him. He was watching TV, and I thought, God, he kind of he kind of looks familiar, but yet he didn't. And then when he turned and looked at me, I realized who he was. He was a haggard, long hair version of Peter Lawford. And uh, then I started talking to him. My wife and friend came over and said, hi, how you doing? And then we went on, but... Uh, it was about a week later he called me after I gave him my business card, put it in his pocket, and he called, and we got together in the park to chat. But what was very curious about that is when he called, he kept asking me, am I the CIA? And I said, no, I'm not CIA, I'm LAPD intelligence. And uh, we'd chat a little bit and say, are you sure you're not the CIA? No, I'm not the CIA. And then he didn't remember meeting me at the Playboy Mansion because he was he was loaded then. Um, well, when I met him in the park to chat. He asked me again several times if I was the CIA, and uh, now I'm not CIA. You know, and so something along the line from one else happened spooked him, and it may have been that the CIA was actually uh, surveilling him, and he saw it. Or was LAPD intelligence surveilling him at times, and he just assumed it was the CIA. Right. But I mean, but that, that would be it would be plausible for having another intel agency looking over him or trying to figure out what was going on, because at that time the JFK were irritating the mobs, the CIA, 
Dolis, all these characters. I wouldn't be surprised. And if you look at even more outside of her death, there was Mary Pinchot Meyer. I think she's mentioned in the book as Mary Meyer. But she was a lover of JFK who ended up dead later. I think later on in the 60s on a suspicious right. death. And I think that even it was uh, James Jesus Angleton went and took Mary Meyer's diary. So those diaries were were bombshells, too, like all the information in there. And I think you wrote in your book, Monroe was afraid that Lawton was going to poison her. She was writing in one of her notes, too, if you remember that. Yeah, that yeah. yeah, so it's just, it's, um, it just, it's a fascinating story about all of them together because uh, it appeared that nobody completely trusted the other person, even though they're having sex with them and, you know, are the best of friends or they're conniving together. They didn't really trust each other. And it reminded me so much of a lot of the mob guys, the mob mafia, traditional mafia that I was working on. When I talked to them, they would tell you something, but they didn't trust the guy who were they actually in business with. And so it was, it was very interesting in that respect, but this was at a much, much higher level uh, than some mob guys talking. Right. Like she got mixed up in very powerful people and may not know how deep she was in. Like, it seems like that to me, like her, she had a young life, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't think she committed suicide. I mean, can you, what do you think, or what did Lawton tell you? I mean, do you want to have people read that in the book or what, what do you think the sequence of events was on the night? Oh, of death? Peter, uh, yeah, they can read that in the book because Peter laid it out to me. Gotcha. Exactly so people can happened. check it out. That's a perfect way to stop this interview. We're at 37 minutes. Where is the best place for people to read this book with a lot of detailed information and inside information from somebody who's in the police, namely you? Where's the best place for people to get Bombshell, The Night Bobby Kennedy Killed Marilyn Monroe? Amazon.com. Amazon.com. And do you have, like, social media or a website, Mike? No, I don't. You don't. So um, people can just go through your publisher if they want to reach out to you. Is that correct? That's right. And then... Um, yeah, really a great book. Thanks so much for the discussion. Again, the title of the book is Bombshell, The Night Bobby Kennedy Killed Marilyn Monroe by Mark Rothmiller, published July 2021. Thanks so much for your time. You're welcome. All right, Thank stay you. there. Don't go oh, cool. Don't go anywhere.